And there's no doubt. I mean, some 40% of the firms are out there either fixed pricing or value pricing, but I would say that only maybe about 5%, maybe to 10% are doing it without timesheets. One of the things you hear, and we can talk about this, is, well, it's not scalable. You know, a small firm can right. get rid of timesheets, but a big firm can't. And I, I want to hit that really mm-hmm. hard. You're listening to the Earmark Podcast. I'm Blake Oliver, CPA. In this episode, I talk with Ron Baker about his favorite subject, timesheets. This is the second time we've talked about timesheets on Earmark. Last time was with Ed Mendlowitz. Back in episode three, Ed gave a rousing defense of the use of timesheets. I did my best, but to be honest, I was no match for Ed. He's a very persuasive man. Fortunately, Ron Baker heard that interview, put on his cape, and offered to come on the show to offer an opposing view. Ron Baker started his CPA career in 1984 with KPMG. Today, he is the founder of Verisage Institute and the host of the talk radio show, The Soul of Enterprise, Business in the Knowledge Economy. In this episode, Ron outlines the four most common defenses of timesheets, and he tears down those defenses. That's the main course. As an appetizer, the conversation starts off with a brief discussion of private equity, venture capital, and the changing business model of accounting firms. If you're curious about that, listen to episode four of Earmark featuring an interview with Charlie Weinstein of Eisner Amper, which recently took on private equity investment and split off the CPA audit firm. Now that that's out of the way, let's talk to Ron Baker. Oh, and one more thing. You can earn free NASBA-approved continuing professional education credits for listening to this episode. After you listen, head over to earmarkcpe.com to sign up, take a short quiz, and get your free CPE. That's earmarkcpe.com. Ron, great to talk to you. You too, Blake. Yeah. What have you been up to these days? What's new? (laughs) Well, you know, we're pushing what I call value pricing 2.0, which is the subscription business model. And I just think that's the next frontier. We're we're seeing an effervescence in the marketplace with this business model. And uh, the market is screaming at companies, as you know, with Pilot that it, we want annual recurring revenue. And if you give us annual recurring revenue, we'll give you a higher business valuation. And we'd be silly not to uh, listen to that market signal. It was amazing speaking with Charlie Weinstein of Eisner Amper about their Towerbrook PE deal on mm-hmm. a recent episode. And he specifically mentioned Pilot as one of those reasons why they thought it was important to change the traditional CPA firm model it was a kind of a shock to me to hear that coming from a top firm, like that it, it's actually hit the radar. Yeah. From what I understand, digging into all the private equity moves that have happened, it's, it's really to kind of monetize the intellectual capital that's kind of latent in the firm and also attract talent and be able to reward talent, even yep. if they don't stick around for partner. Cause I, well, you know, the yeah. partnership <laughs> model's broken. I mean, Jesus, if, if anything needs to change, it's that. You know, before I got into tech, my last position was as a, at a as a manager in a uh, CAS division at a large firm over at Armanino. Great firm, really on the cutting edge with a lot of stuff compared to most CPA firms. But for me as a manager, it was very hard to see a path to partner. I mean, I knew it was there, but what it actually was was super ambiguous, and it was almost like you weren't even supposed to ask. I guess until you'd been there for a while. So when I got the opportunity to go into tech and I could get stock options and I could see, you know, here's my shares 
here's what I have to do over the next few years to earn those and stay here. And, you know, then there's an, there's an outcome, right? It's very tempting. Yeah. I mean, that's one of the reasons why this profession eats its young. <laughs> well, you, you think that the deal was designed to help create liquidity to create, so you don't have to stick around until you're 65 to see the benefit right. of putting in all this time with the firm, right? I think that's part of the, the idea. And also, you have all these partners who want to retire. How are they going to retire if the younger generation doesn't want to buy in to this stick around until you're 65 thing? Exactly. Yeah. I think that's part of it too. And the other thing, I mean, let's not uh, gloss over the downside of this. I mean, private equities, you know, they're flippers. Mm. Their, their time horizon is three to five years. And I don't know if that coincides with the typical outlook of a partnership. So that's why I don't <laughs> think there's gr a great successful track record. You know, I don't know if they're going to be able to get in there and really change the business model to make their investment worthwhile within three or five years. But time will tell. Well, you know, it's funny. I was on a webinar. I was listening to a webinar about this that uh, CPA Trendlines put on. And there were a couple guys there, you know, talking about the deal. And then a question came in. And the question was, how do you think this is going to impact the firm's culture? Because there's so much going on already. Like, how can they do this to the firm culture? And I was thinking to myself, well, isn't that the point of this, right? Like, the, the <laughs> point is to change the firm's culture, to thinking actually more about the, the short-term growth and incentivizing people to do innovative and disruptive things, right. rather than just 10% growth every year is what we aim for. Right. I, I listened to that podcast as well. And I noticed that, uh, you know, they also talked a little bit about pricing and the traditional metrics of the of the firm being, you know, we, we talk about realization and billing rates and all of that. Private equity guys don't look at that crap. What do they look at? Well, they're looking at, at, at portfolio approach. I mean, they're looking at the entire firm. The, the goal mm -hmm. is to make money, not accounting profit. Right. I mean, yep, yep. and there's a, there's a big Ca difference between those two things. Cash flow, right? Yeah. That's, that's what they are obsessed about. Absolutely. They're modeling cash flow, And, you know, I wouldn't be surprised if they tried to push some areas of, of the firm into a subscription model and annual recurring revenue model. Problem I see there is I don't think you can have the uh, subscription model under the same roof as a traditional CPA firm model. They're just two different business models. Well, and that's the perfect transition into what we are here to talk about today, which is uh, timesheets. I struggled, and that's part of the traditional model. I think we should say it's like an ingrained part of the model, which is we track our time, we bill for time. It's something I struggled with in my role. Uh, I was building a fixed fee subscription-based cast practice, client accounting services, inside of a firm that used time-based billing. The disconnect that I personally felt with timesheets was when I was in practice was I'm billing fixed fees. I'm trying to create positive outcomes for my clients, but I felt hampered by having to slot everything into this hourly model where my staff were afraid to work more than X number of hours per month on a client where we'd get called out. And our realization metrics, like they tied our, our hands. And then the thing that really, really, really frustrated me as a manager was I'm trying to put in new technology, which is going to reduce the amount of time we are spending on clients. And that's going to increase our profitability because we're doing fixed fees. The tech reduces the amount of work. We make a better margin. We can help more clients. But the staff are billing hours and they are 
incentivized with their bonuses based on hours. So, so I actually found that they didn't want to do the tech. They didn't want to put in the technology because it would cut their hours. And I actually had one very seasoned accountant who was not on the partner track, not on the manager track, just a one of those, you know, career staff accountants straight up tell me like, Blake, I'm not interested. <laughs> I need to make my bonus. That was kind of a revelation for me. And I realized it wasn't going to work. That was my experience with time-based incentives or, or it wasn't billing, right? Because we weren't billing the clients based on fixed fees or we weren't billing the clients based on hours. We were billing them based on fixed fees, but the staff were tracking time and incentivized based on time. And that was difficult for me in my own experience. You collided with the thing that is different about moving from hourly billing to value pricing is it's not just a pricing change. It's a business model change. Two things change, at least two things, when you have a business model change. One is your pricing strategy changes. So we move from billing based on inputs to outputs, you know, fixed price or value pricing where you price the customer. Either one, that's a pricing change. But the second thing that changes, and most consultants don't talk about this and don't even recognize it but I can't find a single exception to it throughout commercial history. When you see a business model change, the internal dashboard changes. I promise you. It hasn't with accounting firms. Right. I promised you that Airbnb is not looking at the same dashboard as Hilton and (laughs) Uber is not looking at the same dashboard as taxicab companies. Although we, we moved to fixed prices and some even value pricing, we haven't got rid of the old metrics Eventually, that is going to collide, and that's why timesheets are so destructive. Timesheets go back to 1919. I still can't believe in the year of 2021 we're having this debate, but okay, we we have to have this debate. We continue to have this debate, but the timesheet's 102 years old, and my question is, has the world changed in 102 years? Has the way we practice accounting changed since you know the 1950s, the 1960s? I mean, we have all this technology. Blake, I think this is why... A lot of firms were slow to adopt the cloud and all these other apps and all this other tech like bots and AI and machine learning. Why? Because when your business model is I sell time, the last thing you want to do is reduce the amount of time. The timesheet was invented in 1919. Yep. It was a product of the scientific management revolution, uh, which was, you know, uh, the whole Frederick Winslow Taylor scientific management, the guy that used to walk around with the stopwatch and Midvale Steel Company was a complete fraud. (laughs) <laughs> um, his, his work has uh, been totally debunked by scholars. If you read the scholarly work on him, uh, a law firm, a, a law firm managing partner by the name of Reginald Eber Smith was inspired by the scientific revolution because or scientific management, because he was a Harvard, um, he was a Harvard law educated person. And that was the zeitgeist of the time. And he implemented both the timesheet and the billable hour simultaneously into his firm in 1919 in Boston, Massachusetts. And that's the very first professional firm that introduced it. Now, we lawyers didn't pick it up or we accountants didn't pick it up until about 40 or 50 years later. And in fact, the law profession didn't pick it up predominantly until the 50s or so. Uh, So it took a while for the idea to diffuse, but he was the first guy to do it. And I just look at this and go, the world has changed. Business models change. We need to get over this metric. It's got no predictive value. It it can't predict the success of a CPA. Somebody can look great on a timesheet, be a complete hack, have a totally bad customer service attitude, be terrible and rude and toxic to employees or their colleagues. 
This is not predictive. It's it's a mm. data point that is absolutely superfluous if you're not billing hours. And if you're value pricing or fixed pricing or subscription pricing, it's a data point that's not needed. So the timesheet is over 100 years old now. And I know that you have famously said that you don't expect it to go away in your lifetime. But I, I have hope, Ron. And here is why. Because a CPA.com survey done this year, or actually released this year, done in 2020, found a big shift in how time is used in firms. So back in 2018, when they asked, how are you billing for CAS, client accounting services, outsourced accounting, what I like to call actual accounting, as opposed to tax and audit, the stuff that we, we really used to do more of as accountants, and we should probably get back to doing when they did this survey back in 2018, they found that time and materials billing was used by 53% of firms mm-hmm. in CAS still. When they did the survey again in 2020, it had gone down to 25%. Mm-hmm. So that goes to, it's a data point that supports this idea that the majority of firms, vast majority now, are not using time to bill clients. We are using either fixed fees, which is the majority, and some are even doing value. It's funny, actually, in the survey, they said value billing, which is the the wrong no term. Thing, right. No <laughs> such thing. Just no such, If you say that, I automatically know that you don't understand value pricing. Billing so, done in arrears. So 60% are using fixed fees. Uh, 28% are using value billing or whatever they think that is. And 25% are using time materials billing. So there is hope because it means we're not we're not billing the clients anymore. We are still, however, mostly tracking time. Even my most cutting edge colleagues in the what we like to call the cloud accounting community are, are tracking time, many of them. And there are some arguments for continuing to track time, even though it is not aligned anymore with how we bill clients or price necessarily. So I'd like to go through those arguments with you and, and see if we can maybe change some people's minds about this. And tilt things even further, right? Let's get us away from using these to actually manage our practices now. What do you think? Yeah, no, I think that sounds great. And uh, just on that survey, I mean, I'm always, I always take these surveys with an enormous vat of salt because they're non-random, they're non-scientific. People are self-selected that take these surveys. So they're not a representative sample of the CPA profession as a whole. And the reason I know this is because I teach ethics. And when you teach ethics, you meet everybody because it's a requirement for everybody. Mm. And when I engage with those ethics audiences, oh, geez, you would be surprised that they might as well be practicing in 1919. Oh, I just want to make that caveat about those surveys. And to be clear, um, this survey is only specifically about CAS practices, which tend to be the more innovative practices in accounting firms now too, as well. So in in addition to not being statistically necessarily uh, significant, it's also a subset. Uh, So, I mean, this is the the growth area in a lot of cases in many firms. So it gives us hope. You know, it does. Um, And and it gives us a vector of what's going on out there. And it corroborates everything I've seen from other surveys that are done by state societies, AICPA, and even the, you know, software vendors in the space. I mean, Sage and Intuit, they all survey their customers and we get an idea of what's going on. And there's no doubt. I mean, some 40% of firms are out there either fixed pricing or value pricing, but I would say that only maybe about 5%, maybe to 10% are doing it without timesheets. 
one of the things you hear, and we can talk about this, is well, it's not scalable. You know, a small firm can right. get rid of timesheets, but a big firm can't. And I, I want to hit that really mm-hmm. hard. But there's four defenses, Blake, of timesheets, and we can go through this one yeah. each. Each there's four defenses that I've heard. I've never heard anything other than you know somebody told me, well, the Lord doesn't want me to give them up, so, and I didn't know how to respond to that. But here are the four defenses: <laughs> we need them to price. Well, obviously we don't. <laughs> I think we've already knocked that one out of the park. Well, um, well, to be fair, like some people still, I mean, you estimate how many hours the job is going to be every month or whatever, and then you multiply that by your desired rate and that's your fixed price, right? right. It's the easy way to price. Right. And, and if they if they uh, spend more time in a given month or a given period, then their price is too low. And then they try and raise the price. Well, then my solution is, well, then get better at pricing. Because if you can't put a price above your costs, uh, you need better pricers. This is just basic econ 101 type stuff. And, and again, the problem I still have with that that check is it's still the labor theory of value. It still assumes that well, just because we put the time in, it makes the product more valuable. That's insane. Right. There's, there's a whole science, well, not a science, there's an art behind pricing, and there's a whole methodology to the ways that companies come up with prices. I, I think you've used the example in, in webinars I've attended where Apple doesn't calculate how many hours it takes them to put an iPhone together to come up with the price of $1,000 for a phone, right? No. <laughs> Drug companies don't do that when they price drugs. Uh, no com- you know, No sophisticated right. company is using cost plus pricing, which is what hourly billing is. I mean, hourly, I think one of the reasons we like it is hourly billing requires a calculator, but value pricing requires courage. It definitely gives us, um, well, the, the feeling of certainty. And I, I kind of experienced this a bit myself because I just went off to start my own business again. And I've been doing some consulting on the side. When I started doing this consulting, I've got a handful of clients. I wasn't formally doing it, but I started kind of just like in the back of my mind tracking my time. Like it's that instinctual. It is that hard to get away from. And I realized at a certain point that mentally, it mentally made me want to do things that weren't valuable to the client because it was easy for me to do. So I could spend my time doing stuff that's easy and I'm putting in my hours and I'm feeling like, oh, I'm I'm doing what I said I would do because I'm spending X hours. But what they really want is an outcome. I had to shift my mentality to saying, I am, I am going to deliver X dollars of value to this client every month or every quarter. Like you said, it takes courage, right? Because I, I don't know exactly how I'm going to do that. I have to figure it out. It's not a clear, easy thing. If I just track my time and I do some work, okay, yeah, it's easy. I can do work all day long, right? Anyway. But at least you're focused on the right thing when you're focusing on the value. I mean, the problem with the billable hour is it's precise. That's why we like it. It's objective. I can carry it out to do decimal places, but it's precisely wrong. (laughs) And when it comes to pricing and value, I rather be approximately right rather than precisely wrong. Yep. So so that, so let's get back to the list. That was number one, which is, um, we need need hourly to to price. And also I think people you say to validate their prices. Right. That, that Then you just need to learn more about pricing because, right. you know, in the CPA world, you're put, if you can't put your price above your marginal cost, which is the only thing that matters, by the way, then <laughs> maybe you shouldn't be doing the pricing in your firm. Let somebody else do the pricing because that's not the right question. The question isn't, did we make a profit on this job? The question is, how much money did we leave on the table? So number two 
is we need timesheets to track the efficiency of our team. That's a big one. I think many people would agree with that. So how would we know? It's hard to manage people, right? How would we know what they're doing? What you can measure, you can manage all of these, you know, bumper sticker, logical, illogical formulations. Um, I'm not interested in the efficiency of my accountants. I'm interested in their effectiveness because we can be efficient at doing the wrong thing. And innovation and creativity is the antithesis of efficiency, right? When you're Mm -hmm. talking about knowledge workers in a relationship business, as CPAs are, you have to be effective. You have to do the right thing. And that's effectiveness. Efficiency is just a stupid, mindless ratio, right? It's just outputs divided by inputs. Efficiency is always a ratio. It's always a calculation, which means there's no judgment behind it. So for instance, I can prove to you with statistical and mathematical accuracy, Blake, that on average, everybody in the world has one testicle. (laughs) Now, that's completely efficient. That's completely right mathematically, Mm -hmm. but it's not anybody who believes that doesn't have a lick of common sense. So in a knowledge environment like CPA firms, judgment trumps efficiency. And if you want your people to be creative, if you want them to bring innovation to serving your customers, then you have to look at effectiveness, which is doing the right thing, which requires judgment, not just a mindless measurement. You know, the the classic example is if Walt Disney cared about efficiency, your kid would be home right now watching Disney plus, and he'd be watching Snow White and the Three Dwarfs because it would have been a hell of a lot more efficient to make that movie with three dwarfs rather than seven. <laughs> so, so this is very much tied into uh, the traditional firm metrics like realization, uh, job profitability. Which are completely stuff. made up, by the way, because realization is based on what? A fictitious hourly rate. Where'd they get the hourly rate? You know how uh, CPA firms come up with hourly rates? They look around at the market and say, who's the cheapest firm? Who's the most expensive firm? Okay, we'll pick somewhere in the middle. <laughs> it's completely arbitrary. It has nothing to do. I've never seen a firm that actually computes their costs and adds a profit onto it. And even if they did, it would still be dependent heavily on volume. Whether they served one customer or 10, wouldn't that change the rent allocation? It's completely ridiculous. It's completely <laughs> fictional. You're, you're you're adding apples and pickup trucks. I mean, it makes no sense whatsoever. But- but what about job profitability? That makes like no that. sense either for the same reason, because cost accounting is bullshit. I mean, if, if you look at the work of Dr. Reginald Lee, he wrote uh, Lies, Damn Lies, and Cost Accounting, which is a fantastic book. And then he wrote a book called Strategic Cost Transformation. And uh, full disclosure, I, he's a Verisage colleague. I did write the foreword to Strategic Cost Transformation. But the reason that I, I even found Dr. Lee was because I was debating with Gary Conkin, who's a ABC specialist, activity-based costing specialist. Mm-hmm. And we're going back and forth. And I have so little regard for ABC and I have so much contempt for it. I can't even tell you. I think ABC is just a new way to be wrong. But Dr. Lee came into this LinkedIn debate thread and he he said, no, Ron's right about this. And I had never heard him heard of him before. And so I started reading this guy's work and said, oh, geez, he gets it. He wants us to model cash flow. What matters is cash. And accounting doesn't always translate to cash. Right. The, the way that you know, I try to think about this uh, that helps me think, understand it is in most firms, like most staff are full time. We're paying them a salary. 
when we divide their time into hours and we allocate those hours to different clients, that's nothing that's happening in the real world. It's right? completely arbitrary. It's like taking your rent, dividing it by the number of offices you have. Well, what if three of your offices are vacant? Now what do I do? You get into these games like that and right. it, it just gets ridiculous because it has, look, I don't care how you divide up that rent. If you signed a 10-year lease, your butt's on the hook for 10 years of that rent. Yeah. <laughs> divide it up any way you want. It's, re, it's like how many angels dance on the head of a pin. That's why I think it's really important for firms to have minimum prices. You shouldn't just take on any customer at any price. You should have minimum price to, to even let them in the door. So, so what do I do then? If I don't have job profitability, if I'm not allocating hours to projects, if I'm not tracking realization, the question is, how do I know if I priced correctly? How do I know if I am not just losing a ton of money on a job? If you're a pricer, then that's one of the things that you're very concerned about is how much money did I leave on the table? You start to study that and you start to develop, um, you know, after action reviews and other processes that help you determine, did we use the right price? Could we've gotten a higher price? And what happens over time is you build up a pricing competency and it no longer becomes a question of, <gasps> are we making money? It's a question of, gee, did we leave money on the table? Would the cu customer have paid more and been just as happy? And that's something that requires judgment. You know, there's no formula for it, but certainly hourly billing doesn't help you do any of that because all we're doing is looking at the inputs of and hourly billing is completely silent with respect to customer value. If you look at customer value, you're going to have a much higher probability. That's why I like what you said about, you know, yeah, now I have to you know, create so much value for my customers every month. It's not about how much time I put in. You could have a phone call with them in 10 minutes and give them a million dollar idea. Well, and that exactly happened where um, I'm helping a client implement some new software and we were sitting on calls for hours and they were going about it the wrong way. And I finally figured out what the problem was. And I just said one thing. I said, guys, instead of doing this and focusing on this, which is not essential, why don't we do this instead? And that changed the trajectory of the whole project. Yeah. It was one, it, it was like five minutes of my time. So yeah. how do you, how, you can't build that based on time, right? Now we have to look at it and say, okay, well, you know, what was the cost of this project failing that maybe my price should be at least that, or what is the value of the success of the project, which is hard to, you know, but we can come up with estimates. It is hard because look, value is subjective and people want, people try and want to get a formula for it. And that's why they love to check their price based on the number of hours that they spent. But that doesn't check the price. That doesn't yeah. tell you anything about customers' willingness to pay or customer value that you created. It doesn't do any of that. So you're better off looking at different metrics or different things, different questions to ask after mm -hmm. a job goes south. I mean, one of the things that I find absolutely amazing is knowledge firms like accounting firms don't spend enough time reflecting on what they've done, whether it's technical work like taxes or audits or CAS, whatever, you know, we should be doing after action reviews and right. we don't do them, which is amazing, but that's a whole nother issue. <laughs> well, and even when we collect the time, we often don't ever look at it, right? This is the other thing that cracks me up for the defenders yeah. of timesheets. It, it's like, listen, you've been tracking these things for at least 60 years you should be able to tell me down to the rat's butt minute how long everything takes. And then when you tell them that, 
and you say, well, look, you, you should know how long exactly that takes because you have all this track record of time to call through all this data. And they'll say, yeah, but each job is different. Well, then, okay, then why are you tracking time? If each job is a new black hole, why track time at all? Right. Right. Yeah. Why, why even bother? So there's something I want to offer as like a potential solution. And maybe you can let me know your thoughts on this. So here's why job profitability doesn't work, in my opinion, at least in my experience, is that clients are different and they have different needs and you fix the price. And then your profitability, when you try to measure it based on a job, it's going to go up and down and swing crazy amounts every month. Because one month they need a lot and you give them a lot and you go over. And then another month they never call you. And now you look amazingly profitable, right? So it's all that's kind of meaningless data. But what really matters is you've got these people on salaries. What matters is you add up all your costs for this team, and then you look at how much revenue it generated. You know, that's what matters. Like the whole of the practice. Yeah. It's right? it's an interdependent system. And trying to bust it out to audit, tax, CAS, all these different practice groups, and then run a you know, separate P&L and divide the overhead appropriately based on square footage or all these other ridiculous things. That's completely arbitrary. The point is to to maximize the profitability of the portfolio overall. The whole firm, right? And And then this is where even my attempt to sort of broaden it and make it a profitability by practice, just the cash practice, for instance, is problematic. And this is why I think bookkeeping has gotten no respect for so long because the market does not allow you to charge the same rates for bookkeeping as for tax advisory work or or audit because those jobs that work requires more experience and more skill and thus it is valued i i suppose i don't know maybe that's not the right way to say it but anyway the market values advisory work like tax planning audit more than bookkeeping which makes sense there's more people providing bookkeeping anyway you can't set the same firm-wide rate for bookkeeping and expected to sell. So when you measure the, the the bookkeeping team just by itself, it doesn't look that great compared to the rest of the firm. And so the firm doesn't want to invest in it. But what they fail to see is that all that bookkeeping work is a lead generator for all of the other work the firm does. It brings in customers. It's a lost leader if you want to think of it like yeah. you know, milk in a grocery store. It's still profitable. It's just not as profitable based on your traditional metrics. If you look how much work that my bookkeeping brought into my firm, I mean, but we didn't have a way to measure that. Right. Because we it wasn't like we'd go then take, okay, let's take some of these tax uh, profits and allocate that to the bookkeeping department because we brought in the clients. Like, there's just no way to do it. Right. And not yeah. only do, do I not think it, it should be done even by department level, revenue by department, it certainly shouldn't be done revenue by individual person. Because in teams, how do I split up the revenue? Now, some firms that have adopted value pricing have figured that out. They throw the team in a room and they say, okay, here's the fixed price you guys are going to charge for this job. You divide up the revenue amongst yourselves. And then they hold one another accountable. And if somebody doesn't pull their weight, you know, they're voted off the island. And all. But that's ridiculous. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, we're one big firm here. We should be able to collaborate. And, and this is what I love about the subscription model, because in the subscription model, there are no silos because everything just is brought to bear on whatever it is the customer needs. And the whole firm responds and shapes around that customer need. There's no lane of tax audit. No, no. It's whatever you need. It's like a concierge doctor, whatever you need, you're covered. 
the way the uh, subscription business income statement looks and all the metrics, there's no room in there for, for looking at time at all. No venture capitalist is analyzing a SaaS business or any other subscription business and looking at timesheet data. It just boggles my mind. And people say, well, it's not scalable. This is why the only small firms have gotten rid of timesheets. And can I just say to that, hmm, small firms getting rid of time. They're the only ones that have done it. Hmm. Bain and Company, McKinsey and Company, those aren't small firms and they don't do timesheets. So do they just not, they don't care about efficiency? No, it's not that they don't care. I think they've gotten so good at their pricing. <laughs> they don't have to worry about it. <laughs> they don't worry about that. They worry about improving their pricing skills and their, and creating more value and innovating. I don't know if they would label it that they don't care about efficiency, but I certainly would. I would say they, they're putting more emphasis on effectiveness. Think about Google. Google gives their people 20% time, do whatever the hell they want. You know, work on a project they think is really cool or join a team that's working on a project. Can you imagine a CPA firm that bills by the hour doing that? Eight hours a week? Well, <laughs> Times this, 50 weeks? And this is why also uh, my staff were not interested in taking educational courses, like getting training, because it came out of their hours or they had to do it off the book yep. after hours. And you know, the firm had some sort of like tiny allowance for it, but it was not nearly enough. Not when you're trying to innovate. Well, innovation is not efficient. <laughs> that's another, that's another, Absolutely. Uh, right. Either is CPE. Right. CPE is not efficient. Uh, in fact, uh, yeah. learning a new skill, you're going to be inefficient for a while until your skills climb back up. Yeah. Why does work take so long in a CPA firm? Well, you could say it's bad management. You could say it's poor training. Okay. Okay. That those are really good surface explanations, but why, <laughs> well, why after 60 yeah. years of timesheet data, does work still take so long? Well, I would say it's because we underinvest in CPE and knowledge management and after action reviews precisely because those things are not billable. They're not billable and the benefits are intangible. They take a long time to accrue. They build your invisible balance sheet though. Yeah. And that's why subscription businesses are worth more. The other thing you asked about what, what other things do private equity or subscription business capitalists look at, venture capitalists, it's all about lifetime value. It's about mm -hmm. keeping that client, growing that client, you know, win, keep, grow type of thing. But when you look at lifetime value, and this is kind of the same thing with cash flow, you have to model it and project it. It doesn't, you can't pull that off an income statement or a balance sheet. It has to be modeled. And well, we're not so good with modeling. Well, yeah. And then there's also the issue that uh, traditional gap accounting doesn't know how to handle intangibles. So no, that's absolutely. a se separate, absolutely. Yeah. separate issue, right? Yeah. Baruch Lev has uh, really, really done a great job on looking at that topic. Yeah. That's the challenge too, is that like, how can an accounting firm build a subscription business when gap accounting cannot handle subscription businesses properly? Well, and this is why we have a stock market because thank God, because the stock market values things that the gap financial statements can't, which is why Tesla's worth more than General Motors. So that was number two. That was the efficiency of the team. I need them to track the efficiency of my team. And the, the answer is we don't actually need to do that. We just need to get better at pricing. No, because you and, know one of the simple uh, put downs of this objection or this defense of timesheets is: Do you know who your stars are and your duds are without looking at any data? 
And we do. And of course you do. Yeah. You live with these people for yeah. eight, 10 hours a day. Of course, you know who, you know, the, the professional, who's got professionalism and, you know, a good cheery attitude and all those things that we, that are predictive of the success of a CPA where a timesheet mm. just isn't. All right. Number three. It's cost accounting. We need to calculate profit per customer. And if I didn't have timesheets, how would I know the profit per job? Well, first off, right. you, you, you got to have minimum prices. You shouldn't be taking on work below a certain threshold. And I think as over time, as you get better and more confident in pricing, that price goes up every year for new customers that you bring on. When you offer options, you're, you know, you have three options that you provide to each customer. You'll notice that most of them pick in the middle. Some will pick the top option, 15% or so. Some will pick the bottom option. That also gives you more profitability per job by offering options. And there's other things you can do too, like offer a value guarantee and bundle in unlimited access and fix the payment terms around their cash flow rather than your workflow, things like that. All sorts of things you can do to enhance the value so you can command a higher price. Again, I want to look at the profitability overall because we're going to have some customers sitting in the back of the plane. We're going to have some customers sitting in business class and we're going to have some customers sitting in first class and that's okay. I love that analogy because most airlines, if they thought like accounting firms and they had an empty seat and coach, they wouldn't sell the ticket because they would say, oh, we're losing money because the coach, the, the first class and business class subsidizes everybody in coach for the cost of that, that flight. And this is the fallacy of uh, of trying to do cost-based accounting or ABC or whatever you call it, because, and this is the problem with bookkeeping too, where, okay, it may be lower than our hourly rate for what we can charge for bookkeeping, but that doesn't mean that we're actually losing money. Cash is coming in the door, right? Our costs are fixed. So right. incremental work just adds to the bottom line if we have capacity. Does, and, did I say and, it right? I don't. Well, yeah, it's sort <laughs> of. I mean, I, I would say this, that CPA firms... What they will do that airlines would never do is they will add capacity for back of the plane customers. Now, an airline would never do that. They're not going to put a bigger plane on a route because they have more coach customers. They will put a bigger plane on the route if they have more business class or first class customers, but they're not going to put uh, more capacity chasing, you know, Priceline.com shoppers. Right. Whereas a CPA firm will take everyone. We'll take everyone. They'll, they'll sell, they'll fill that plane. In fact, they'll stuff it and they'll make some people stand up in the bathrooms to stuff the plane and, you know, create a lousy customer experience. And, and what that does is you end up spending so much, a disproportionate amount of time, you know, dealing with the little old lady hitting the call button 40 times during the flight to get more peanuts Mm -hmm. at the expense of pampering those people in the front of the plane. Yeah, so maybe a CPA firm is more like Frontier Airlines. <laughs> I had to fly that one. Have you ever flown on Frontier? Oh, yes, it's awful. <laughs> it's, it's literally awful. like a metal bench covered in leather. <laughs> I mean, you, you cannot describe it. Uh, yeah, yeah I, I hear you. It's a terrible airline. So everybody is like crammed into that, right? Like that's a that's a CPA firm because there there is no way to distinguish between other than like informally or just ad hoc between like your best customers in your but here's the thing with that Blake and I want to get your opinion on this see if it comports to your experience 
we got a lot of pushback in the early years when we used to put up a schematic of an airplane and talk about the first class business class. We even gave percentages of where we thought your capacity should be allocated because you get to choose, right? You're not like an airplane. You you can move that bulkhead around and have more of your, your seats dedicated to first class or business class, whatever. And people would say, oh, no, 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 we can't do that. We have to treat our customers the same. Are you saying, and, and you hear this with three options too, are you saying that if they pick the bottom option that their books might balance, it will be close enough for horseshoes and government work? No, no, no. We're not saying that you're competing on quality. That airplane has to land safely for all the passengers. So they can't skimp on safety and maintenance and all of that. But what they do uh, differentiate on is service. Yes. (laughs) Right? The people in first class are going to board sooner. They're going to get their champagne. They're going to get their bags up first. All the amenities that they have for being in the front of that plane. But, you know, the flight gets there at the same time. It's Mm -hmm. just a different experience and people are willing to pay for that. And that's the number one thing I hear from criticisms. If you go on and look at people's reviews of accounting firms, if you ask them, why did you switch? Most of the time, it's because my CPA doesn't answer the phone. They don't return my calls. It's lousy service. Right. And why do they do that? It's because they're too busy. They're too busy. Why are they too busy? It's because they took on too much work. Why did they take on too much work? Well, it's because they have to build... 3,000 hours or something. Every right? hour is a good. I've never met a billable hour I didn't like. Every dollar is a good right. dollar. That's what I was taught. I was taught from Pete Marwick that professional firms are top line driven, Ron, because our costs are fixed. So we need to get that top line above break even, obviously. But then once it's above that, then the money just flows to the bottom line. Mm. The more we can bill you out, the more hours you bill. It's it's kind of a crazy model. And yeah. you're starting to see it change, in the in at least in the medical space, where you're seeing some of these concierge doctors and DPC doctors move from a panel of patients to 3,400 down to a panel of patients of 600. I, I, I always like to ask people this. Why did you become a CPA? What, what even got you into this profession? Nobody has ever told me to bill the most hours, to kill myself during tax season, to have thousands and thousands of clients. No, we, we got into this profession because we wanted to help people and or their businesses, right? Mm-hmm. You can't do that if you have too many people. Yep. Don't confuse I think, being busy with being profitable. I think that's the root of the dissatisfaction in in accounting. I feel like it's everyone feels burned out, so busy, and they they can't help. They'd have too much work to help people meaningfully, and so it's all just a scramble to like meet deadlines. It's hard to feel like your job's meaningful, right? I agree. You're constantly running on that treadmill, and the billable hour just and the timesheet, which I think is the real cancer. The billable hour is an outgrowth of the timesheet, but it takes your life and it bifurcates it. It says you're either billable or you're non-billable, mm-hmm. and when you're non-billable, meaning you're at your kid's soccer game or something, we want you to feel really guilty that you're not being more billable. And this is why people eat time and borrow time and fudge on their timesheets. And people say, well, no, well, people don't lie on their CPAs are honest. They don't lie on their timesheet. Um, well, okay. But let me ask you this. It's a fireable offense in most firms, especially the top 100, especially the big four. It's a fireable offense to lie on your timesheet. Yeah. And all our listeners know they, that it happens all the time and they have probably. Yeah. Show me one person yeah. who's been fired for lying on their timesheet or eating time. So anyway, uh, we, we need to get to number four. Okay. And that's project management. Project we, we management. We need 
project man. We need timesheets to, how would I know, you know, my capacity if I don't have time, how would I know when to hire somebody else? And here's the thing, project management projects capacity forward. <laughs> it doesn't look back backwards. It's like timing your cookies with your smoke alarm. It doesn't look backwards. It projects capacity going forward. Somebody, a customer comes to a construction company, says, we want you to build this skyscraper and we want it to be able to go live, you know, open up on such and such date. And then they have to project that capacity. What do we need to do that? And is it even possible, right? You saw this with some of the reconstruction around the LA freeways after the earthquake. There was that one contractor that said, look, we'll do it in four months. You're going to pay us an enormous price if if we get it done or whatever. But And he did. He got it done. In fact, he beat the rapid deadline and got a huge price increase because of it. But project management basically fills the timesheet out in advance and projects it forward. What project managers don't do that accountants have a fetish about is compare that projection of time forward with what actually occurred and, and trying to compute a variance. I'll, I'll give you a r- really tangible example that Ed talks about that I just love. I give you a job, Blake, and I give you, a, I don't know, a tax return. And I say, Blake, I think this should take about a day. Now, you, I could put, I could go to your whatever workflow system you use, right? Jetpack, whatever it is. Mm-hmm. And I could say, okay, I estimate that the Smith file, that Blake Scott's going to take eight hours. Well, I'm definitely going to take eight hours. I, yeah. I don't. <laughs> yes, you, yes, yeah, you probably will. You, if if I'll I if I did that, you probably would. Um, but you know, yeah. <laughs> here's the thing: if you did it in two hours, we'd want to know about it because then you probably figured out a way to innovate or or do something automized or uh, you know whatever, bring some yep. new tools to it. We'd want to be able to share that knowledge. This is why after action reviews are so critical. But if it took you twenty hours or 16 hours, I'd probably also want to know that too. Say, okay, well, why yeah. is it because you but didn't you have the education? Is it because you have too much other work that, you know, yeah. when I give you something, you should give up something. You but say, you're, ne- you're never going to know that because I'm going to do that one time and then I'm going to have to do this long conversation about why it took so long. And then the next time I'm just going to write eight hours when it took 10 right. or 16 <laughs> because it's not worth the conversation. You know, there's no perfect solution here, right? I mean, even right. project management's got some fudge factor built into it. But the point, even broader than that, is the project manager is not going to get all excited about whether or not you come in at 10 hours or six hours or 16 hours. The project manager is more worried about duration. Why did that job that I gave to Blake, that we estimated approximately a day, why did it sit in the firm for four weeks? Because that shows you where the constraints are. That shows you where the bottlenecks are. Usually the partner, usually the review process. This profession is over-reviewed, especially if you did risk profiling. We we will spend hours writing the, there was a guy, did you ever see the guy who did the dumbass review notes website? (laughs) No, but that sounds amazing. Oh, he was, he was incredible. He was in a big eight firm. I forget which are big six, whatever, big four at the time. And he would get these review notes and he would publish them on his blog. This was back in the blogging days Mm -hmm. and he would publish the review notes. He gave the answers that he wished he could have written to them. And it was hysterical. Maybe you can find it on time machine. It was, it was called dumbass review notes. I mean, we met the guy in LA cause we were so blown away and he was, he was great. I doubt he's in accounting anymore, but he just had the wickedest sense of humor when it came <laughs> to just, we write these dumb review notes. And a lot of times maybe the partner or manager who, who wrote them 
will just clear them themselves if you know well, whatever. Well, that's the big problem because then but, they do the work that and but, the staff don't learn. Exactly. And have we solved that problem after 75 years? No. But this is what after action reviews do. They solve that problem because everybody would get together and talk about what they learned on the job. What were the objectives? What went right? What went wrong? How could we do it better next time? If that is scalable. I, I was just in an air show in Sacramento. The Thunderbirds were flying, but but I've never seen the Canadian Snowbirds, their air team, which is pretty cool because there's like 10 of them. They landed and the announcer came on and said, hold on, folks. The Snowbirds are going to do an after action review. And they, walked, they, wow. they got out of their cockpit. They huddled and they spent about seven, 10 minutes doing an after action review talking about, okay, what just happened? What went right? What went wrong? And then, of course, they go in and they do a bigger one, a four-hour one, just like the Thunderbirds do. These are cohesive teams, which, by the way, have 50% turnover usually every two years. They get you know new pilots in every two. And after four months of doing this and with full after-action reviews, they can work more cohesively than a lot of teams and CPA firms that have been together for decades. Well, because we don't do that. We don't do after-action reviews. I know. Only and it just blows my mind. Yeah. Well, because we don't have the time and it's not billable. Right. That's it. That's, same reason knowledge management failed and same reason we're slow to adopt technology. Yes. Technology eats hours. Hey, I just had this experience where I, I switched uh, editing software for my for this podcast. And I, I found something better, but I knew it was going to take me time to learn the process. I'd gotten it down to like, I don't know, four hours with the old software. It took me eight hours the first time I did it with this new thing because I had to learn it. Mm -hmm. And now it's down to two. But for a couple episodes, I was way, way over. And in an accounting firm, if you have a similar situation, right, who's going to get punished for that? You know, who's who's going to say that's okay? Because it can also take a lot longer. It could take months, right, if you're changing technology to become more efficient. That's the problem with tech in hours. Yeah, there's a very well-known thing called learning curves or experience curves, and Bain and Company and Boston Consulting Group documented this really well, that for every doubling of output, your costs are cut in half. The time it takes you and, and the cost you incur to do whatever it is. This goes from chickens laying eggs to building airplanes and eyeglasses. Everything else is really well documented across a wide array of industries. And there's no doubt that, yeah, my 100th tax return, I'm going to be much more, quote unquote, efficient than my first two, same with a surgeon operating. But technology does throw a wrench in it for a while because you do have to learn these yep. new things. So, Ron, we're, we're about out of time. I was wondering if we could do a mini after action review right now to make sure we've covered everything we wanted to talk <laughs> about. The topic ostensibly was uh, timesheets, and I think we nailed that. We had a little bit at the beginning on private equity, but it all tied in. We had four items that we were talking about. Do you mind going through the list again? Let's sure. review. The four defenses of timesheets. I need yes. them for pricing. I need them to track or measure the efficiency of my team. I need them for cost accounting so I can figure out profit per job or profit per customer. And I need them for project management so I can know what my capacity is. And I think we have fairly well dispelled those four <laughs> objections. I, I mean, the main thing... I really think the main thing that people like them for is knowing what people are working on. But, yeah, you know, but you should know that through good, proper project management. Right. If, if every time I assign something to, you know, one of my team colleagues, I, I should be able to pull it up on their master 
workflow sheet and see everything that's in their pipeline. And I think, I think we need to get better giving our team autonomy and saying, you know, when I come to you, Blake, and I give you that eight hour tax return, you say, Ron, which of these other jobs would you like me to postpone so I can get this done? Yep. And no team member wants to do that. And there are all sorts of solutions now as an alternative to traditional practice management software that will give you a beautiful Kanban board, which is like a digital sticky note board that shows, you know, a column for each person and what they are working on, the projects that are on their plate. And I love looking at something like that because I'm seeing what they're working on right now and what's coming up versus what they did last week, which is as current as timesheets will ever be generally, right? Yep. And and by the so. time I see it on a timesheet, it's no longer manageable. It's it's too late. It's it's no. crazy to me. It's it's timing your cookies with your smoke alarm. But those are the four big different. And I just want to say this too. People say, well, yep. geez, if you get rid of timesheets, we're going to have utter chaos and it's going to be, you know, chickens with their head cut off running around the firm and we're not going to know anything. Here's what replaces timesheets. Value pricing. A business model change, so a different dashboard obviously. Appointing, hopefully, a value council, maybe even a chief value officer, so you you build up some pricing competency. Capacity and cash flow management. Proper project management, which we use the timesheet to do now, which is completely ridiculous. Key predictive indicators, Mm. you know, things like net promoter score, innovation revenue, um, turnaround time, HSDs. There's a few others that you can use as leading indicators. Turnaround time being really important because that's what the customer cares about, right? It's why FedEx measures it. I don't care how long my package sat on a truck or on an airplane. I care that it drops on my doorstep by 830. And that's what FedEx measures. And they do it relentlessly every single day. They have a whole dashboard of, they call it the FedEx Service Quality Index. And it's like 12 indicators and they're all customer centric. We should measure things the customer, we should define success and measure the same things that our customers define the success of, of our relationship. Turnaround time, keeping your promises, returning phone calls, all those things. I would love to meet a firm that measured response time. How long does it take you on average to respond to an email from a client? And how long does it take to return a phone call? Yep. That would do amazing things to improve the service levels at the firm. It might. Yeah. I mean, I you know, I would also like to see how many points of contact we have with a customer that are either that are not driven by a customer mm-hmm. request. It's us us reaching out, and and you can't do that if you have thousand. You know, it's the same thing with the doctors. There's so many parallels between doctors and CPAs. That's why I'm so interested in the direct primary care model because the parallels are uncanny. Doctors, these DPC docs were doing telemedicine and, and texting and email long before COVID. I mean, years before COVID you can get a response in 15 minutes, maybe sooner. Yeah. They'll come out to your house. How can they do that? They have four times less patients. That's built into their pricing. Back to the subscription model, which I think is really cool. If you wanted to set up like a DPC type accounting firm, your price would probably be able to go up by a factor of three, four, five, because you're not just selling services or scope of work, you're insuring that the customer is going to be taken care of for anything they need that the firm is capable of doing. So if they get audited, you're covered. If they need, you know, something really quick, like a financial report or something to get a bank loan, you'll do it. You're just covered yep. and you'll always have the capacity to do it. Cause just like an airline, you'll always have a couple first class seats reserved for that last minute 
business class flyer or first class flyer. And I'm not sure if you mentioned it, but one thing I think is really important that I'm seeing small firms succeed with is specializing in, in certain industries, certain types of clients, very niched, because that just makes the pricing so much easier when, when, when you're dealing with the same type of customers. It is. We're like veterinary offices where we, we take every species in the world <laughs> and, and aliens too, right? Like, right, right. As opposed to that you know, doctor who specializes in humans. It, it's uh, really funny. I know several vets who actually specialize. They would only do dogs yeah. or only do cats or even just surgeries, special types of surgeries, just like some yeah. human doctors do. But yeah, I, it, no doubt that the most profitable firms in the world, bar none, I mean, it's not even close, are all niched. So I have a good friend who does nothing but dentists, and that's all he does. So not only does it make his customer selection and customer cost of acquisition cheaper and easier, um, he turns away everybody who's not a dentist, but he only works with those that he thinks are interesting, that have a cool practice, that are doing something cutting edge. He's all on subscription, and uh, he's a sole proprietor. He's got 12 team members, and he's the most profitable practice I know. So Ron, if people want to learn more about your philosophy, which of your like 20 books should they read? Because I have one on my desk right now, Mind Over Matter, Why, why Intellectual Capital is the Chief Source of Wealth. Yeah, but- that wouldn't be the one. Um, that, that, that's actually, Ed thinks it's the best book I've written, but it was also the most difficult. It tries to deal with that issue of intellectual capital and why, and trying to explain why Gap can't account for intellectual capital. And by the way, I don't think Gap could ever account for intellectual capital. But that aside, uh, the book I would recommend to people is in implementing value pricing. That's my favorite. I mean, that's the one that changed how I think about it. So yes, implementing value pricing. I'll put a link to that in the show notes. Do you like people to buy that on Amazon or? Yeah, Amazon. It's on Kindle too. It's a little bit cheaper. It is a professional book, so it's got a sticker shock price tag. But uh, if you get it on Kindle, it's a a bit cheaper. It's value priced, guys. It's It's value value priced. priced. You're going to get get a lot out of it. And of course, The Soul of Enterprise, the show I do with Ed, we've done shows on project management. We've done shows on after action reviews. We've had Dr. Reginald Lee on talking about the perils of cost accounting. We've talked a lot, done a whole bunch of shows on subscription, talked to the leading authors in that space, and and just a whole bunch of other shows on all these different topics and KPIs, all all of that. And people can get it all at thesoulofenterprise.com. Listen and subscribe to thesoulofenterprise.com. And Ron, are you on social media? Yes, I'm on LinkedIn. I'm one of the LinkedIn influence bloggers, so people can follow me there. I have posts up there of other shows I've also been on, such as this one. And I'm also on Facebook and Twitter at Ronald Baker. I have a very common name, so sometimes I have to use my, you know. (laughs) Yes, when when Googling Ron Baker, you do find a football player comes up. uh, A Chevy dealership somewhere, I think, in (laughs) San Diego or something. Yeah, yeah, no, it's a very common name. It's... uh, I'm fortunate in this regard. There are not too many Blake Olivers in the world. So yeah, you know, I'm sure there's you... only one Ed Kluss in the world, literally. Really? Yes. That's he's he's unlikely. done extensive research on that. There's only one. Wow. He's got well, a very you, unique name. My co-host of the Cloud Accounting Podcast, David Leary, has the related problem of Dennis Leary coming up. Yes. Whenever people yes, search I for bet. him. I bet. So you know how he got around it is he created a page on his website that says, I am David Leary, not Dennis Leary. Dennis Leary. <laughs> and now that comes up. When people search David. Yeah. So just a recommendation for anyone out there. Ron, thanks so much for your time. Great having you on. I'm so excited that our listeners are going to get CPE for this on the Earmark app. And I hope to have you back again. Cool. Thanks, Blake. 
Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed this episode and that you learned something new. And if you did, wouldn't it be nice to get some CPE credit for it? Well, I've got great news. My new app, Earmark CPE, offers free NASPA-approved CPE credits for listening to podcasts, including this one. Visit earmarkcpe.com to download the app, take a short quiz, and get your CPE certificate. That's earmarkcpe.com.